All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me this evening to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, looking only at one verse this evening, verse 17. We come back to a topic which we've already talked about in part, already talked about in verse 7, them that have rule over you. One of the hallmarked distinctions of a biblical local church is the concept of biblical authority. A local church has biblical authority. Now, this is manifest in different ways throughout different denominations, as we might say, between pastors and elders and bishops, uh, which the Bible speaks of all within the same uh, general requirements of office, though they might have different functions depending on um, which groups you're talking about, different hierarchies divided into different categories and different churches. And then, of course, there's the office of the deacon, which we find in the New Testament as well, a separate office from that of pastor, elder, bishop. But the Bible is very clear that there are differences between a simple gathering of believers in a local church, and one of those differences is that a local church has biblically ordained authority. And ordained authority is what we speak about today in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And I'm going to read the verse in question today, of which we'll have plenty to talk about. And then after that, I'm going to, uh, before we dig into it, I'm going to kind of lay a little bit of, of, of foundation, a biblical justification for the things that I just said about biblical authority. And then we'll come back to Hebrews 13. We won't be out of it for too long this evening. But the text that we have this evening, Hebrews 13, verse 17, tells us this. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, for those who are following this series, again, as I mentioned, we have already answered the first and most important question. If you were stepping into this text, the first and most important question would be, who are these that have authority over you. After all, Romans chapter 13, 1 Peter, talk about the, the importance of submitting to civil government, right? And so we say, okay, well, the, those in civil government, the king, uh, as it would have been in that time, uh, has authority over us. And then if we go to Ephesians chapter 6, we see, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And so we recognize that uh, parents are a authority over us. So then the question is, who are these that Paul says are they that have rule over you? And the reason why we don't need to spend too much time with it this evening is because we spent time answering that question in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. And remember what we read back then. Verse 7 of Hebrews 13 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. So verse 7 told us that them that have rule over you in this context is those who have spoken unto them the word of God. And then we connected the dots between those that have spoken unto them the word of God and the commission that we find throughout the, the New Testament that there be a group of men ordained by the church, recognized by the church, chosen by God to be apt teachers of the word of God among God's people. That God raises up men and gifts them to be teachers, to be shepherds, to be overseers of the flock of God, and that that is what we connected to, this idea of them that have the rule over you. And so we have no real doubt about who's being spoken of here in verse 17, as the context is, 
immediate, right? Uh, we're only 10 verses away from that idea. We're even in the same chapter uh, as it would relate to the chapter divisions in our Bible. Then they have the rule over us, ordained spiritual authorities in the church. Pastors, el- elders, bishops, which as we talked about then, I'm not gonna necessarily rehash it this evening, but that is biblically the same office. Those that are ordained by the church and acknowledged as the church's leaders. And in verse 7, we spoke about the fact that it is taken for granted that the church has ordained a man or has ordained men who they regard as bearing the marks of a divine calling as well as the qualifications. And we walk through those qualifications briefly. We find those qualifications in First Timothy. We find those qualifications in Titus. That if a man does not fulfill the qualifications of being a bishop, pastor, elder, if he does not bear the marks of having the Lord's hand upon him unto this end that he be apt to teach and, and capable of leading, if he has not shown that fruit, then the church should never have ordained him to begin with. But at the point that the church has indeed ordained him and has validated those characteristics in his life, then, as we considered in verse 7, it, is, it would follow that you would see him as someone that you can follow. It makes sense then that if he bears the marks of First Timothy, if he bears the marks of the Titus qualifications, if he bears the marks of one who is a, a, not just a follower of Jesus Christ, but a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, then you ought to see him as someone whom you can follow in your faith whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And so we talked through that idea. If those men bear those marks, if they carry those qualifications, then they are men that are worthy of being followed, worthy of being regarded, worthy of being remembered. And Paul is speaking about these same men in verse 17. As we see him exhort these readers to obey and to submit to these men. And we'll talk more about those words in a minute because those are important words to consider. But this is certainly not a foreign command in Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, the Bible says this, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. That would be those who get up and preach. That would be those who counsel and who lead. That would be those who admonish the flock of God. He says, And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So 1 Thessalonians compels us to esteem the laborer in the faith very highly because of the work that he's doing. There's nothing more specific mentioned in 1 Thessalonians as it relates to what it means to esteem them more highly, but this is where other passages fill in the gaps. Uh, of course, we would turn to First Thess- uh, First Timothy. We often will find these ideas in the pastoral epistles. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes this. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So Paul calls for the church here to count those elders among them who have labored, particularly who have labored in the word and in doctrine, worthy of a double honor, invoking this Deuteronomy 25 standard of not muzzling the ox that treads out the corn. That if the ox is treading out the corn, then you don't put a muzzle over him. He has the right, as he's treading out that corn, to eat of the fruit of his labor, to eat of the corn that he is is plowing. Now, as Paul says in that passage, God does not give us that idea of don't muzzle the ox that treads the corn just for the ox's sake. He is setting out a principle, and that principle is in that second phrase, 
that the laborer is worthy of his reward or the laborer is worthy of his hire. That a man who puts work into something is worthy of receiving compensation for said work. And that is the principle. So don't muzzle the ox. Give the laborer what is, what is worth. And then he says, and count those who labor in word and in doctrine worth a double honor, worthy of a double honor, right? Now, 1 Timothy 5 is actually the second time we find that exhortation invoked from Deuteronomy 25 not to muzzle the ox. The first time is in 1 Corinthians 9. And here Paul does make that analogy more clear. We read in verses 3 through 14, and Paul writes this. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? And as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, Cephas is Peter, or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working who goeth to warfare at any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth the flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or say not the law the same also, for it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, it is, a great th- is it a great thing that we should reap your carnal things? If, o- if others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, Paul says, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So Paul's message here is pretty clear, right? Indicating that it is right and it is good that the minister of the gospel be supported by those who are direct beneficiaries of his ministry. And as he speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 9, he's speaking directly of the idea of reaping the carnal things, right? Of being taken care of, of of being able to live of the fruit of the gospel. Now take note that this is not a requirement. In fact, as Paul says here, he says, we have not, we have not taken advantage of this, that the gospel be not hurt. It is not a requirement that the people who are direct beneficiaries be the ones who take care of the minister. It is not a requirement that a minister uh, be, um, be taken care of by the people of, of the, the church or whatever the case may be. As a matter of fact, um, a, a large portion of the missionary model, as we understand it, is that the churches of America are actually subsidizing missionaries to be on the field so that the missionaries do not have to be a burden to the indigenous peoples, right? So the indigenous peoples are not being asked to to sustain the missionary because he is being sustained in other ways. We also can talk about bivocational pastors and those who work a, a regular job and they are sustained by that job as anyone else and then they are a lay pastor Uh, in order to minister to their flock. So there are these other models that we see, and those models are perfectly acceptable biblically, but it is also the case that, as Paul contemplates throughout the Gospels, uh, I mean, throughout the epistles in in 1 Timothy and 1 Thessalonians, uh, about this idea of the ministry, he says it is right and it is good that a minister would be taken care of by those unto whom he is ministering. So the principle is there. 
And if we carry this principle into 1 Timothy 5, then it would be natural that we would understand this idea that the minister or that the, 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 the laborer who labors among them would be worthy of a double honor, would connect in some way to the fact that he is being cared for. So we take 1 Timothy 5, which is somewhat ambiguous, and 1 Thessalonians, which is somewhat ambiguous, and we carry it into the idea here in 1 Corinthians, and we see that a part of that honor that is intended to be given to the minister is that the flock would take care of him. But as we consider Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, there is another aspect to this honor, to this regard, which is perhaps more important, at least in my perspective, than the physical. Yes, the, the church takes care of their ministers, and that's right, and that's good. It is as the Lord has ordained it. Some churches cannot, and that is fine. Some ministers defer, and that is fine. And all of that is well and good. But this verse which is another way that the people of God can honor the ministers that are among them, this one doesn't have the same wiggle room as far as I'm concerned. In verse 7, Paul asked the church to remember the minister and to follow his faithful example. But here in verse 17, Paul calls the church to regard the wisdom and direction of the minister. And the idea is this. If God has placed his hand upon someone and he has borne in them the marks of the minister and the church has identified those marks, recognized his faithfulness, and so ordained him to lead, then they need to let him do his job. They need to let him do the thing that they have already identified that God has called him to do. You say, well, yeah, okay, so get up and preach, pastor. That's not everything. That's not everything. And it's not necessarily an easy thing to let the minister do his job when it's time for him to do it on you. It's easy enough to let the minister do his job when you say, hey, pastor, have you thought about so-and-so they could use a talking to? But what happens when it's time for the minister to come to you and say, hey, can we talk? So let's talk about our text. And in this verse, the words matter. I could preach this verse, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, and I could... I could um, make some pretty harsh demands based upon those words. But if you look at the words that undergird these words, that changes things a little bit. So the first word that we consider this evening is obey. This is not the common word for obey that you would find in the New Testament. The idea of listening under or hearkening to. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's not that word. The word here actually means to be persuaded or to be convinced. It only carries this idea of being persuaded in the middle voice for our Tuesday crowd that, that we talked through the Greek a little bit. It, uh, in, in the active voice, it means to persuade. In the middle voice, it means to be persuaded. Here we have this word in the middle voice. So the idea of obey here is to believe or to comply, to regard, to, to be persuaded by, to be persuadable. May I put it that way? 
It's only used five times in the New Testament. The same can be said of the word submit. This is actually the only time in the entire New Testament that this word is used in the Greek. It's translated here, submit. It is not the common idea of submission. When I talk about submission, the idea of, say, a wife submitting to her husband, the idea is to place yourself under, to align with. It literally means to to arrange yourself under. That's that typical word for submission. But in this case, it means to yield or to give way. Now think about these words together. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Now let's kind of bring in this Greek gloss here. Be persuadable among those who have the rule over you and give way to them. Right? So we're not talking about a dictator who sits in his iron, who sits in his ivory tower and sits on his iron throne and you come up and you kiss his ring and then he gives you commands and you say, yes, sir, and you go do them. That is not the idea of this verse. The idea of this verse is this. God has called this man. You have, you have brought yourself under the authority of this church over whom this man has been called to lead. Predispose yourself to be persuadable when he comes up and he exhorts you. Be ready to yield yourself to his leading in perspective. That does not mean if he says something unbiblical, you go along with it because you obey them that have a rule over you. That's not how that works. This does not mean that when pastor goes off the rails and decides that he wants to to do something crazy and foolish and, and irresponsible with the church or with the church's money or with the church's people or whatever it might be, that you just say, well, obey them have the rule over, you know. But what it does mean is this, that when there is something amiss, when there's a conflict, when there's a direction, whatever it might be, when pastor has a direction that he feels as though the church needs to go. When pastor comes up to you and he is concerned and the Lord has laid you upon his heart as it relates to some manner of your living, your direction, your thinking, whatever it might be, that you take that closely to heart. That as pastor would seek to, would seek to articulate to you the concern or the direction or whatever it might be, that you are in a predisposition to be persuaded by him so that you are looking to be persuaded because you believe that God has ordained this person in your life for a reason. If you are weighing your thoughts and your opinions and the counsel of your friends and the counsel of your family and the counsel of your pastor, the counsel of that one who has the rule over you in the Lord ought to have an outsized weight in your mind. You ought to be predisposed in your mind to be persuaded by your spiritual authority. And as he sets a faithful example, and as he shows himself to be a spiritual man, all other things being equal, wisdom and doctrine dictate that you highly regard his counsel, his warnings, his exhortations, and his advice. And the second half of this verse gives you the reason why. Well, because he's on a power trip. That's not the reason. Well, because he thinks that somehow he has some sort of special gifting of the Lord and he has a unique inside track to the mind of God. No, no, I don't. But I do have an incentive. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves 
Why? For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. As your minister, I will stand before God and answer. For myself, for my family, but that's not as a minister. That's as a father and a husband and as a man. But I will answer for this church. I am accountable for you if you have placed yourself under me. That is not a light thing. You know, it's one of those interesting things. We talk about all of the reasons why we are careful and we want to be careful about the nature of church membership. You know, I grew up in the typical independent Baptist church where some guy shows up on a Sunday, you've never seen him before. He comes up during the invitation, says, I want to join the church. We have a voice vote on whether or not they're going to join the church. Everyone says, amen, and he joins the church. And we talk about why that's probably not the best of ideas, right? As it relates to the church and as it relates to accountability and as it relates to the fact that when you are a member of the church, you are placing yourself under a heightened level of accountability. And and with that heightened level of accountability comes a heightened level of support, right? To where if you have a need, the church is, is, is intent and determined to be there for you to help you in your time of need. And you, in return, are going to help others in their time of need. But a part of that is that we're also holding ourselves accountable. That if someone comes up to you and says, hey, brother, I'm concerned about you. They are a fellow member. You are a fellow member. It, there is a vested interest there in one another, in being sure that everyone is spiritually right. We're not the spiritual Gestapo. We're not there peeking around the corner, seeing who we can judge. But what we are is we are concerned about the health of the body. And if you have joined yourself to the body, then you should expect heightened accountability. But it's just as much a reason for us to be careful about who joins in membership for me, because that adds a heightened level of direct accountability to me. Because now you are one of the flock in the most formal way possible, which means in the most formal way possible, I am accountable for your soul. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not directly accountable for whether or not for the choices you make, but I am like Ezekiel, a watchman on the wall. I have a job to do when it comes to those who have bound themselves to this body which means I have an incentive to lead you properly. I have an incentive to help you along the path. I have an incentive to guard your soul, which means if I'm regarding my job properly and I come to you with a concern, again, you should be predisposed to believe that I do not have an ulterior motive that I'm not bringing up these concerns simply so that I can pad my numbers or because it's causing me grief among the others or whatever, but quite literally because I'm concerned about you, because I love you, because I want you to be right for your sake, but also because I have to give an account. And since I have to give an account, I have the motivation to keep you in a place where you're right with the Lord, to help you along on your path. At the very least, I have to give an account for whether or not I did my part. Again, I won't have to give an account for the choices you made. But if I did not warn, if I did not guide, if I did not lead, if I do not pray, if I don't do my part, I will answer for that. In James chapter 3, 
James exhorts the brethren about the nature of the ministry, and he says this, my brethren, be many masters, knowing they shall receive the greater condemnation. That word masters there is the word teachers. And he's warning against this predisposition to step into the position of teacher in the church. Now, it's wonderful. As a matter of fact, Paul says, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. It's a wonderful thing for anyone who desires to place themselves in that role of teacher, who would be willing to step into that role of teacher. But whether it's teacher as it relates to me as a bishop, a pastor, or whether it's teacher as it relates to Nathaniel, who will be covering for me here in two weeks as I uh, go out of town for the week, don't be hasty, James says, to place yourself into a position where you are standing over men and exercising a measure of authority as it relates to doctrine. Because that comes with accountability, right? The same idea carries into my role, not just as a teacher, but my role as a shepherd. I am commanded to watch for your soul, to stand on the wall and to look out for danger to sound the warning cry when I see it, to call you back from that edge, to help guide you, protect you, and to keep your soul safe from spiritual shipwreck. And this is a momentous responsibility. And it's a momentous responsibility for which I will give an account before the throne of judgment. Now think through what Paul is saying here. If I want to sell my home, I hire a realtor. And because the realtor gets paid when the house is sold, I have every confidence that that realtor will be working to, in my best interests, right? Because the condition upon which they get paid is when I see what I want to happen, happen. They have skin in the game. Therefore, I can have a measure of confidence in the role that they play to the extent that their suggestions regarding some aspect of the sale of the property, of what would help it sell or what would be necessary, I am predisposed to give more weight to them because not only do they have expertise in that area, but they have a vested interest in making sure that it's done right. They have every incentive to tell me the truth and to do right by me because they don't get paid unless my property sells. Now, Paul is saying the same sort of idea here. Your spiritual leaders have a vested interest in your spiritual well-being. I don't want to offend you. I don't want to anger you. I don't lay awake at night thinking about how I can upset the people in my church by calling them out on some area of their lives. I don't, I don't get a great joy out of making you feel uncomfortable I don't get some great joy out of confronting you. I don't get some great joy out, uh, in, in having to give the hard messages. I certainly don't, don't get any joy out of talking about myself from the scriptures. This, these, these messages are miserable for me. Calling you to obey me, calling you to give money to me. It, it's never a comfortable thing. I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. I'm not interested in judging you. I'm not interested in shaming you. I'm not interested in guilting you. But the condition of your soul is important to me for its own, on its own, right? Because I, I love you. But make no mistake, I have a vested interest in you because I will give an account for your soul. 
And if that is the case, in that this is the case, if I am an honorable man and a spiritual man, and, and, and don't lose sight of this, not every minister is an honorable man and a spiritual man. There are plenty of ministers who operate on some other motivation than that they will stand before God and be accountable. And we have to discern that. But once again, I'm assuming here, I'm, I'm, I'm making the biblical assumptions, which is that the church has put in place a man who has borne the fruit of faithfulness, who bears the, the marks of the qualifications of 1 Timothy and of Titus, a man who uh, regards his, his authority and his duty with the proper weight so that he understands what James chapter 3 warns about being not many masters, so that he understands the qualifications as they rest upon him, and he understands his accountability before God one day. Right? A lot of ministers, that never even enters their mind. But if I am an honorable man, and if I am a spiritual man, then when I come up to you with my concerns, when I give you spiritual direction, when I tell you that I believe something is, is important for you, you can have confidence that my concerns are out of a genuine care for your spiritual well-being, added to the reality that I believe and will in fact be held accountable for you, and thus your posture ought to be one of being persuadable, ready to yield, Not only because I want you to be spiritually well, but also because I have to give an account. As one who is commissioned by God and by this church through ordination to watch for your souls. I'm commissioned to protect this church. I'm commissioned to protect those who have placed themselves under my leadership and authority in this church. To this end, we find this exhortation that you be predisposed to be persuaded by my concerns for you. That you give added weight to those concerns. If I feel f compelled to confront you, it's not because I don't like you. It's because I care deeply for you. It's because I'm concerned about your spiritual well-being. And as an added motivation, it's because I'm a watchman on the wall. And if I don't share my burdens and my concerns with you as one who has been commissioned to do this very thing, if I do not attempt to help you in your spiritual walk, if I bury my head in the sand and say, well, I hope that it'll work out for them. I'm deeply concerned about the direction that they're going, uh, but you know, it would be really frustrating to have to, to confront them. Things are going really well in the church right now and I don't want to make waves and, and uh, we, we've got some things coming up and we're going to need some money and I don't really need anyone leaving anyway. If, I, if, if, if those things, if, if, if I do that, then I am negligent. And my negligence will bear fruit unto judgment before the throne of God. And on the day when I give an account, there will be two very different emotions. The first will be joy. And by the way, it's not just on the day that I give an account. not just the day of judgment. But there will be joy. Looking upon certain 
of those who walked in sound doctrine, who when I came up to you, led of the Lord to guide you in the way that you should go, which is my ordained calling. And I advised you in the faith and you were persuadable and you aligned yourself and it bore the fruit of righteousness. I can at least metaphorically present you to the Lord in joy. And then there will be the grief as well. That I saw the evil and I called you to see the evil and to hide yourself, but instead you passed on and were punished. And I will not be held accountable per se if I did my part. But I, as your minister, when I, walk you, when I watch you walk down that path of error, there is great grief. And that's not just grief at the throne. That's grief in this life as well. And we talk about this in terms of the day that I give an account, but as I said, know this. Not a day goes by as a minister where I do not think of you. Where your needs and your concerns and your spiritual health are not on my mind. Not like some creepy stalker, but in the way of a man who is accountable. There's nothing more grieving to a pastor than spending time exhorting a man unto an end, having been given the wisdom and the insight by virtue of the ministry that God has ordained me unto to help a person out in their time of need, to direct a person in the way that they should go and end consistent with the exhortations of the word of God and the unique wisdom and the capacity that God has given to spiritual leaders to lead and to guide those who are his own, only to watch that person who has committed themselves at least in word to your authority and to your guidance to ignore everything you say and to go his own way. Now, again, if I say something that is outside of consistency with the word of God, ignore away. But may I encourage you, not just for me as a spiritual leader, but may I encourage you as it relates to any spiritual authority in your life, Don't do this to them. If you read this verse, which exhorts you to be readily persuaded by the guidance of spiritual leaders, and you bristle at the idea of allowing me to have that kind of influence over you, then you need to go place yourself under someone under whom you won't bristle. And if you bristle at the idea of any spiritual authority having that kind of influence over you, then you need to get something right in your heart. Because that's not spiritually normal. That's humanly normal. That's definitely American normal. But that is not spiritually normal. To have an utter repulsion or bristling at the idea that the Lord has placed over you spiritual guides. Say, all I need is the Holy Spirit. That's not true. Pastor, what do you mean that's not true? 
Yes, the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. So you have need that none other man teach you as it relates to testifying truth into your heart. But as it relates to spiritual leadership and guidance, God has ordained it, which means you need it. So if you're not okay with me, well, certainly take that up with me. If you're still not okay with me, go find someone you're okay with. If you're not okay with spiritual authority, you're going to have to take that one up with God because it's in the book. Don't do that. And, and, and particularly, don't place yourself under, under my or anyone else's spiritual authority with an intent to disregard when we come to you. Don't do that to us. You have no idea how grieving that is. I have a job to do. Let me do my job. Finally, for those of you who do not find in me a man of spirituality or faithfulness, who do not find me worthy of the office unto which I've been ordained, faithful in the ministry therein, Well, if you do not find that, then if the church does not find that, then the church needs to get me out of here. And again, if you do not find that, then you need to go find someone who you can regard and respect in that way. If you do find me that, however, if you find me a man of spirituality and of faithfulness, worthy of the office unto which I've been ordained, no one in this room was here on my ordination day, except for my family. Most of them weren't even here. If I'm not worthy of that office under which I've been ordained, that's one thing. But if you find me aligned, a faithful minister, may I encourage you to then dispose your heart toward me in that regard. That I may fulfill my office with joy and not with grief. I'm going to do my job. It's not necessarily easy. I'm not perfect at it. But I'm going to do my part let me do it with joy. That I may feel free to watch for your soul as one that must give an account. And that I can give that account with joy. Saying as John did in 3 John. We don't get to 3 John very often. But you know what John said in 3 John, verse 4? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. There's no more true statement for any minister. Yes, I love to preach, but I don't love to preach to empty seats. My reward in this life is not the salary I receive each month. It's not the opportunity to have some position of power or authority. It's not getting up here and saying the things that the Bible says to empty chairs. It is to you. My reward is not to be seen by people as something special or someone special. My reward is to watch you learn, to see you grow to watch you become spiritually successful, to make right choices. This is what thrills my soul. This is what gives me fulfillment. It's not to feel your love and the idea of, well, you know, Pastor Wickler, let's uh, make him a cake. Let's give him a, 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 a plaque he can hang on his wall. That stuff, that, that's not it. I don't, I don't, 
That, that, that is not fulfilling to me. What is fulfilling is when you, who is the epistle written on my heart, walk in truth. You want to show me your love for me? Walk in truth. You want to make me feel fulfilled at my duty? Walk in truth. You want me to pillow my head at night with joy? Walk in truth. That is my reward in this life. Conversely, a bad week for me is not necessarily a week where my sermon doesn't really come together. That's never fun. A bad week is not necessarily a week where someone mocks me as a pastor or um, ignores me uh, and, and uh, the, the position that I have as it relates to the community or whatever it is, or shows me disrespect, those things aren't necessarily here nor there. A bad week for me is when those whom I am commissioned to care for in the Lord regress in their spiritual walk. When they come to me and say, Pastor, can I ask your, your, your thoughts on this? And I open the scriptures and I, I, I say what the Bible says and I pray and I seek the Lord's leading and the Lord lays upon my heart a path that I believe that they should go and I lay all of this before them and they say, okay, and they walk away and ignore it all. When you make the bad decisions that lead to your spiritual detriment, these are the things that grieve my soul. These are the things that when I pillow my head at night, makes me have trouble sleeping because that is actually what I'm here for. You are actually what I'm here for. Your spiritual wellness is what I am here for. I can be as clever and as articulate and as precise and as interesting as a speaker as I can possibly be. I can be as engaging and personable and enjoyable to be around as a minister as I can possibly be. I can make it really easy on myself and I could uh, just uh, fall back upon a YouTube ministry and, and, and write a bunch of books and, and write to a bunch of nameless faces or faceless names or how I could, I, I could do that. But if I fail to be a watchman for the souls of men, if I ignore the faces that are before me, if I don't watch for your soul, then you, and, and if you are not better, if you are not more spiritual, men and women, or at least if you have not been compelled to be more spiritual men and women, I haven't done my job. If you are not more spiritual men and women at the end of my time with you, then I may have done my job, but I, I did it through grief. My reason to exist in this church is unjustified if you have not grown. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, I mentioned it already. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. My office may include many things. And indeed, in the American church especially, my office does include many things. I am the CEO of a business, technically. I am an IT guy. I hope to one day be an author. That would be a great thing if I could write some books. As a pastor, I wear many hats. As counselor and as friend, and sometimes as mechanic and whatever else, Right? But one thing I can't afford to do, in part, I'm, a, I'm an IT guy in part. I am a CEO in part. I am, a, uh, I, I am these things in part. But one thing I can't afford to be in part is the shepherd, shepherd of your souls. That is my hold, my commission, my calling. And I will be held accountable for that very thing. 
I don't think God will care what our church building looks like on the day of judgment. I don't know that God will particularly care about the ins and outs of our digital IT setup here. Now, those things might facilitate fruit, right, through ministry, uh, being a good steward of what he has given to us as it relates to uh, a building or, or, or future building, those, those things, certainly. But the nitty-gritty of those sorts of elements of my pastorate, how well I actually followed um, the, the, the proper format in, in business meetings, those things, those aren't the things that, that I'm, I'm particularly concerned about. But I will give an account for your souls. That is my charge in relation to my accountability. And so I do my part. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says that you have a responsibility in this as well. In other words, you can make my job easy or you can make my job hard. And the command that Paul gives to these readers in in Hebrews chapter 13 is that you make my job as easy as you can. That I may do what I do with joy and not with grief. And the charge is that. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. Not cater to my every whim. Not give way to every single thought that runs through pastor's tiny little cantaloupe-sized brain. Be predisposed to yield to Pastor Wickler's exhortations as it relates to the spiritual on your behalf because he has a vested interest in you and he has a vested interest in the day of judgment in making sure that your soul is right. So dispose your heart toward me favorably. Be predisposed to be persuaded that I may give an account one day with joy and not with grief. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.